Well, if you like, if you can open your Bibles, uh, if you didn't bring one, we have one in a pew before you. We're in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We're chapter, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. It's on page 1007 in the pew Bible. There is a Chinese proverb I'm sure you heard of. It goes like this. A journey of a thousand miles begins with what? Yep. One step. The first step. While true, I would also add that a journey of a thousand miles also ends with one step. And if it were not for the 1,760,000 steps in between, one would never make it. That proverb helps you to take the first step, but how does one endure to the very end? The Christian life is all about endurance. Christ has called us to take that first step and follow after him, and, and we've taken that first step with confidence and with great joy. But somehow, somewhere along the way, it gets hard, doesn't it? We take our eyes off Christ or we experience trials from the hand of God. We can experience persecution, like Christ said we would. It can be easy to throw in the towel, to scale back our commitment to Christ and his kingdom, to withdraw from Christ and from his church. Today's sermon is titled, Competence to Endure. And the passage we're about to study will help us do just that. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, 
for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. It is a powerful reminder of your grace and a motivator to press on, to endure for your sake and for your glory. By your Spirit's presence in our midst now, may we press these truths deep into our souls, we pray. Amen. You know, I think it's almost impossible to overemphasize the importance of confidence in our lives. Confidence is what makes the possible probable and the inevitable endurable. Just think of all the human accomplishments that came to be because of confidence. The nine-year-old boy who hits the line drive with the words of his father ringing in his ear, come on, son, you can do it. Keep your eye on the ball. Or the gymnast who nails that difficult landing as her teammates cheer her on. Or that shy man who is prodded by his work friends to ask the girl out. And she says yes. To have confidence is critical to living well. In verse 35 of our passage, the writer exhorts his readers saying, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I think we've all seen athletes, they lose their confidence and they buckle under pressure. And then you hear the sports announcer say, oh, it looks like he's throwing in the towel. We've all seen this. And unfortunately, I think we've all done this. Sometimes we've thrown in the towel. It's over fairly insignificant things, right? Like giving up the bid on the silent auction or (laughs) stepping down from the high dive or letting somebody else take your place on the old zip line. But the writer has an even far more significant matter in mind, the confidence to endure as Christians in the struggles of life. Struggles that that may even come close to dragging us away from the anchor of our faith, Jesus Christ. And if we remember, Jesus did say that all who follow after him will suffer persecution and hardships Being a child of God does not exempt us from trials in life. I think we all know this intellectually. But when the trials come, it can be hard to press on. So the writer tells us in verse 36, he says that we are in need. He tells us what we're in need of as Christians. What is that? He says, you have need of endurance. Now here's the good news, and hopefully it shouldn't surprise you. The God who calls us to endure is also the one who empowers us to endure. And so the big point we need to see this morning is that the gospel gives us confidence to endure. We're going to look at that under three headings. The way, the warning, and the word. The way, the warning, and the word. First, the way. 
Do you know what Christians were first called before we came to be called Christians? We were called members of the way. From Jerusalem and all throughout the Mediterranean, Christianity was called the way. Today, people, um, just like then, have been mocked and ridiculed and ostracized and killed. We Christians today are called judgmental, right? We're called narrow-minded. Never mind the fact that to judge someone as being judgmental is, in fact, an act of being judgmental. And to demand Christians to not be narrow-minded is itself a statement from a mind that is narrow to its own belief in non-narrow-mindedness. I like the point C.S. Lewis makes in The Abolition of Man. A great many of those who debunk traditional values have in, in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. That's what I thought. An example of how Christians are ridiculed and judged is happening all over America this very morning on Mother's Day of all days. As you know, last week it was leaked that uh, the Roe v. Wade is possibly under um, being overturned. And so today there's thousands of protests that are set to pay, take place at Christian churches because we affirm that life begins at conception and we believe that abortion is the taking of a human life. If David can rejoice in Psalm 139 that God knit him together in his mother's womb and that he is wonderfully made. And if the Holy Spirit can come upon John the Baptist while he's in his mother's womb, then from God's perspective, God's perspective, life begins at conception. But we Christians are mocked and ridiculed for crying out in support of those who have no voice. People will say, you don't care about women. They will say, what about rape or incest? As if you don't care about rape or incest. The truth is, most unwanted pregnancies don't occur because of rape or incest. Most occur because two adults who know how babies are made had sex, either didn't use birth control, their birth control failed, and now from their perspective, they have a problem. You know, many of the same people who post signs on our beaches saying, save the plovers, or save the sea turtles, believe that there is a valuable animal life in those little eggs on the beach. But they deny such truth when it comes to pregnant women, that there is life in the womb. On my news feed this morning, I saw protester signs. One said, abortion is normal. Another said, abortion is a gift. Another read, anti-abortion laws kill us. How ironic, how sad. When the world we live in calls the taking of innocent life as normal or as a gift, we know we live in dark times. Christian, I know this topic is a hard one. It's been politicized. But from heaven's perspective, life begins at conception. 
Babies in the womb have no voice. By the thousands upon thousands every day, they're being aborted. And we Christians are mocked for not caring. Christian, please know that for thousands of years, those who belong to the way have been mocked and ridiculed and persecuted. You can look it up, um, but in the first and second centuries, people didn't have ways to abort babies. You know what they did? They just left them out on the curb. I read recently a letter from a, a, a husband who was traveling. He sent it home to his wife. She was to have birth before he returned. He said, if, if, it's, a, if it's born a girl, put her out to the curb and let her die. And what the Christians did, though, is they gathered up those babies and they gathered them up and cared for them and provided homes for them. We have been mocked and ridiculed and persecuted for thousands of years. So what is to be our source of confidence as we experience hardship and trials as we follow after Christ? Well, our source of confidence cannot be from something we generate inside. We cannot anchor ourselves to ourselves. Just ask any sailor. It doesn't work. As we see in verses 19 to 25, our confidence comes to us in two ways. One, God has given us himself. And two, God has given us each other. First, in verses 19 through 21, they tell us that God has given us himself so that we may have confidence to endure. Let me illustrate this. During a marriage ceremony, and I enjoy uh, officiating them, husbands and wives promise to have and to hold until death do they part. And then they give each other something in which to demonstrate to the other their pledge, right? What is that? Rings. They give each other rings. And so the wife is to look at the ring that her husband gave her and have confidence in his pledge. God has given us a pledge, not by ring, but by his son. Look at verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20. Confidence comes to us, listen, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Verse 21 says that we have such a great high priest over the house of God. This, this means that Jesus is alive and he intercedes for you. At the end of verse 23 gives us this firm anchor for our confidence where we read there it says, for he who promised is faithful. The writer is telling us something that we must know. Listen, God is utterly trustworthy. In the midst of our struggles, as our faith wanes, God is faithful. And we're to know this because God has pledged his love to us in his son. Jesus has opened up for us the new and living way. The problem is, when we're knee-deep in suffering, you and I tend to see with our physical eyes, not our spiritual eyes, but with eyes of faith, Jesus is what we need to be focused upon. I don't know about you, but my tendency, my typical go-to when hardship comes my way is to play damage control in my own strength. This text challenges me to be quick, to lift my eyes to Christ, who alone is to be my source of confidence. How about you? Are you quick to look up or are you slow? 
So the way of the way is first to find our confidence from above, to look to Christ, to abide in him, to approach his throne of mercy and grace. In the next few verses, we see that we're to have confidence because God has given us each other. Verses 22 through 25, they're about the communal life that those who belong to the way participate in, or at least we're supposed to. We see three statements that begin with the words, let us, and there's a fourth one that is implied. Many Christians have this sense that their life of faith is a private matter between them and Jesus. I'm not saying it's not, but I am saying it's far more. God has given us each other so that we may endure together with confidence and joy. See, the way of the way is a communal way. Now, what is the typical way, our typical human fleshly response when hardship befalls us? Do we not withdraw and wallow? I'm sure you've all done this, right? Circumstances get so bad that you withdraw yourself from others, and then you wallow in your hopelessness of your circumstances. And you begin to think that you're the only one on earth who's going through such troubles. But God has given us each other so that we may endure with confidence and joy. And so after reminding us as to where our confidence comes from, what does the writer tell us to do? This is remarkable. Listen, he says we're to worship. Worship? Seriously? In the midst of my suffering? That just doesn't sound right. Remember Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Remember those words? Do you remember what words came right after that? Did Jesus say, go ahead and wallow and withdraw? No. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying that when you experience hardship, don't just barely get by. Don't withdraw. Don't wallow in self-pity. Rejoice and be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. My friends, this is how it has always been for God's people. So let us draw near, the writer says, with a true heart in full assurance and faith. The way of the way is a way of worshiping together. In verse 23, we read of another let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We Christians have a confidence. Uh, We have a confession. We have a hope that we hold on to. We hold on to the promises of God that he has given us in Christ Jesus. And we are to hold fast. But listen, it's not because... By holding fast, we will make things work out, right? Oh, we just need to hold fast and you can fix things. No, the text says, for he who promised is faithful. Do you know that God has never, ever backed out of a promise? Never. Not a single one. His promise to care for and safeguard his people is certain. So let us together Hold fast to this, even now. Verse 34 begins with, let us. And here we see the even more communal nature of our confidence. This let us statement has two parts. Part one, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Part two, and let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, that's the day of Christ's return, drawing near. 
it seems as if the early church is being, was um, being plagued with sporadic attendance. The writer says, the habit of some. Maybe some were tired from their struggles throughout the week and they couldn't lift their heads from their pillow on Sunday morning. Maybe some thought that the Christian life is just a private matter. The communal worship isn't all that important. Sounds like the habit of some today. Not you, of course. You're here, right? Please understand this. Jesus didn't save you for solitude. Christ gave up his physical body so that we would become his spiritual body. God made us. God actually hardwired humanity. Each and every one of us is wired for community. And we will only become what Christ is calling us to be by living in community. Together we stir each other up towards love and towards good works. And together we encourage one another as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Now, can you see how living this way would give you confidence to endure? We need each other to stir each other up and to encourage one another. So that's the way. Now for the warning. I recently warned a young man who struggles with drug addiction that if he continues, he would likely overdose and die like many thousands do every year. Warnings are appropriate as they sober our minds and cause us to think holy thoughts. And so this is the fourth warning section in this letter. He warns them and us of the reality that awaits to those who abandon Christ, who in the end turn from him. Verse 26, he says that those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, the writer knows that in every church, there are those who really aren't genuine believers. Now, how will we know if we are really genuine believers? Endurance. We keep on keeping on. Today, do you believe in Christ despite your troubles and hardships? Yes. Tomorrow, will you keep pressing on through your troubles and hardships? Yes. How do we know we really belong to the household of the faith? Endurance, perseverance. We will endure to the end. We gather as his people and we cry out together to Christ. We do this on Sundays and, and our strength becomes renewed like that of the eagle's. And so the, the writer warns those who are gathered into this church. For those who hear Jesus' atoning death, when they hear of that for their sins, but still do not turn in faith or do not persevere in faith, the writer says there is no other sacrifice for our sins. It just makes sense, right? Christ is the only sacrifice for our sins. And so then what is the person to expect? Verse 27 says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if you think this sounds like the writer is saying that God will judge people and some will be found guilty and punished, well, you're right. Jesus, too, warned his listeners repeatedly to avoid judgment in hell. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I get it. 
I know we live in an age where human reason has no room for divine activity such as this. People demand that God be one-dimensional. God is love, but nothing more, they insist. So how do we reconcile the idea of divine wrath with a loving God? I don't have time to go into a deep dive, but trust me, they're good answers. It was something I struggled with before I came to faith. If you want to read more on the subject, there's a book on our book table back there by J.I. Packer titled Knowing God. Packer makes a great argument that says, really, when we put our minds to it, it is proper for God to be angry at sin. He asks, would a God be morally perfect who did not react adversely to evil in his world? Surely not. God has the same attitude towards sin that a mother has towards a fatal disease that threatens her home. The answer is that God's wrath is not opposed to God's love. Indeed, the two are inseparable. People who oppose a God who judges really have a far greater issue at hand. What they really oppose is the very idea of God himself that there is a God who is sovereign and in control, who rules and reigns over everything, a God to whom we must bow a knee, a God who is worthy of our adoration. The human heart, listen, the human heart runs from such ideas. As our writer says in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A dead God? Yeah, we can deal with that but one who is living, he must be avoided at all costs, or so people think. The writer tells us there are three realities with regards to someone who's fallen away from the truth. We see it in verse 29. One, they have spurned the Son of God. Two, they have profaned the blood of the covenant. And three, they've outraged the spirit of grace. Now our English word spurned in the original Greek means to trample underfoot. Imagine if you saw an Olympic athlete win a gold medal and then throw it to the ground and then stomp on it. Would you not say, what's wrong with that person? <laughs> they also profane the blood which Jesus lovingly poured out for our sins on his cross. The blood that opens up the very gates of heaven itself and bids us to enter into this new and living life that he gives us. It would be like pouring out a really prized Napa Valley Cabernet onto the dusty soil. And all of this is an affront to the Holy Spirit, whom the writer calls what? The Spirit of Grace. Most people never look at their rejection of Christ this way. But that is how offensive it is. Now again, remember, the writer is warning his readers against falling away as they endure through struggles. But also remember that the writer believes that in the end they won't fall away. Look at how he ends the passage in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He actually believes that in the end, they will endure. They just need something. What is it? Confidence. A part of instilling confidence is issuing a wake-up call, a warning. Maybe you need a wake-up call this morning. You profess faith in Christ, but yet as you look at your life recently, it really isn't isn't characterized by a heartfelt desire to honor him and live for Christ in his kingdom. The writer says, watch out. 
And he gives us a dire warning, which is meant to sober us up so that we may endure in confidence. Isn't it true the Christian life is a daily life of what? Confession, repentance, pressing on in faith. This, is, well, this will be how we live each and every day of our lives until Christ returns. And we're to take up our crosses and follow after Christ. And we do so by having our eyes fixed upon Christ and his cross. So we looked at the way. We looked at the warning. Now, anybody ready for a word of encouragement? Good. A while back in Relevant Magazine, there was an article titled, Overcoming Compassion Fatigue. Here's a quote from it. It's a little lengthy. Compassion fatigue is the gradual lessening of compassion over time, usually due to a growing feeling that all the effort being expended is pointless. Compassion spurs us to get involved, to pray for the victims, volunteer hours at a local soup kitchen, participate in a mission trip, and give to help the homeless. But compassion fatigue sets in when we work and give, but begin to wonder why things don't seem to be getting better. Eventually, we can become callous and desensitized and no longer willing to hear another sad story or a charity's pitch for money. End quote. Compassion fatigue, they got a name for it. You felt this, right? Especially moms on Mother's Day, compassion fatigue. I'm watching a mom chasing a little kid around out there. There we go. Keep it up. Keep going. The author has sensed compassion fatigue in his congregation. So what does he do? He asks his readers to remember when. Remember when you first came to faith? Remember how exciting it was? Remember how joyful you were? Remember how you gave up everything just so you could share the gospel or live this new life? Remember how the sins just fell off you as God changed you, made you more holy? Remember? We would be good to remember. He reminds them of how in the past they endured with great joy and compassion. We can tell from the words of this writer that they began well, right? What, what do we read? They endured hard struggles with sufferings. Sometimes they were publicly harassed and ridiculed. Sometimes they helped those who were being mistreated. Sometimes they showed compassion to their fellow Christians who were in jail. And you know what happens if you were to go visit a jail back then as a fellow Christian? When you go to visit someone in jail, you are subjecting yourself to being thrown in jail. <laughs> Yeah, I really don't know that guy, sorry. Just bringing him some food. And some even had their property taken away publicly. In verse 34, we see that this, this, this was joyfully accepted. He is reminding them of the time in which they poured out their hearts and souls and livelihood for the sake of Christ and their brothers and sisters in the Lord. It was a time of great suffering, but also a time of great joy. Many of you know what the writer's talking about, don't you? Right after coming to faith, you endured hardship and struggles, and with great zeal and hope and joy, you pressed on. You became so identified with Christ, with our Savior, that you were willing to suffer, even as he has suffered. But isn't it true 
that after a while our, begin, our ability to endure begins to wane. We stop drawing near in worship and rejoicing in our hardships. We stop encouraging one another. And we therefore stop being encouraged. We stop giving of our time, of our assets, and we start withdrawing and wallowing. Or we take that towel that we once used to wipe the sweat of endurance off of our brow and we lift the towel high as if to throw it in. The writer is wise. He knows that sometimes we need to be reminded of the joyful suffering that we have endured in the past. It's like the coach who encourages the team at halftime. Team, we've been down worse before. We can do this. And so the writer encourages them, and he encourages us. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The author is saying, you show courage in those days. Don't abandon that now. He tells us that confidence has a great reward. What is the reward of confidence? The reward of confidence is endurance. And what is the reward of endurance, the result of it? Verse 34 says, it says, we have need of endurance so that, that's a purpose clause, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And what is it that's promised? Verse 37, look at what it says. Yet a little while, the coming one, will come. Yet a little while, the coming one will come. Did you hear that? Christ is coming. Hold on, the writer says. Don't shrink back. The coming one will come. God has never backed out on a promise. In chapter 12, the writer will tell us that, that, that it was the joy that was before Jesus as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's leading into the, his, his death on the cross. It was the joy that was set before him that motivated him to endure the cross. That's the same Greek word, and despise its shame. Joy in this future grace to come produced great endurance in our Lord. Should it not also produce great endurance in us? Because our Lord has endured for our sakes, we too are to endure for his sake because of the joy set before us. This is the Christian life. This is the way of the way. Christian, because the one who endured the cross for you is coming, we too can endure with joy, knowing his return is certain. And consider this, Christian, because Jesus never suffered compassion fatigue. The new and living way has been opened up for us. This morning we've been reminded that we have need of endurance. <laughs> On the one hand, we love our Lord and we long to honor him with our lives, but on the other hand, taking up the cross and following after Jesus feels like death some days. 
The way of the way is one of suffering and hardship, and none of us are immune. But God has pledged us his son so that we may have confidence to endure. And God has given us himself, and he's given us each other. We have also heard a warning that to walk away from the way of the way is a fearful endeavor. There is no sacrifice for sins other than Christ, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We've also heard a word of encouragement. The writer wants us to remember our early days as people of the way, days when we joyfully accepted struggles in our lives because our eyes were upon Christ and upon his kingdom. So may we not throw in the towel, but instead maybe demonstrate endurance. May we, as we come to the Lord's table, commit afresh to living for Christ in his kingdom, no matter what comes our way. And may we be reminded that the one who gave himself for us is coming for us. The coming one will come. So may we live in confidence of this today. Let's pray. Oh, how we need your word in our lives. Words that challenge us, correct us, rebuke us even. But you do it with great grace. As we read, you have showered us with the spirit of grace that points us back to Christ. Maybe with great joy, press on. May we be a persevering church. May Grace Presbyterian Church be, be heralded um, as a church that presses on in the gospel despite what comes her way. May we do this because you are faithful, God, towards your people, towards your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.